Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. I love my job, getting to visit with wonderful, inspirational folks, working for the healing of the world, and sharing their works and stories with you. Case in point is today's guest, Ash Curie. Certainly not every artist is a healer, but Ash's art leads the viewer on a path to introspection and healing. Ash served in Iraq as a member of the Wisconsin National Guard and speaks with such candor and honesty and grace that you should expect to be deepened and changed by his stories. Ash Curie joins us via Skype from Argyle, Wisconsin. Ash, it's good to talk to you again today for Spirit in Action. Oh, great to be back, Mark. Thank you. So I talked to you because of your visit out to Standing Rock, and I find it so important to delve into the detail. We didn't have time to do it during that interview. Let's start as if people haven't heard that interview. Could you tell me a little bit about your experience with going to war in Iraq? How did you end up going to war? I was in the Wisconsin Army National Guard between 1999 and 2005, I joined the military, the National Guard, as, you know, the number one recruiting tool is education benefits. It's really seen as a stepping stone to uh, education and increasing your social status or et cetera. You know, the, the recruitment is they spend large amounts of money on poor-income families and low-income regions of the country. I saw it as a way to go to college, and so in 1999, I joined. I didn't imagine that the National Guard would be going to foreign wars. That was definitely something like the recruiter said and pointed out, that the National Guard wasn't called in for Vietnam. And so I thought, you know, that it would benefit our society, it would benefit Wisconsin, it would benefit me. It was kind of a the fabled win-win situation by joining the National Guard. Many people know after the September 11th attacks, President Bush federalized the National Guard, which, like I said, wasn't done during the Vietnam War. And so actually my National Guard unit was deployed in 2003 for Operation Iraqi Freedom 1. I remember watching the invasion from Fort McCoy in Wisconsin, our mobilization station. You know, being in the National Guard is uh, it's a different attitude than being in the regular Army because you are a lot more community-centered and so even when we were in the mobilization station, it was really hard for me to imagine that we would be going to Iraq. I remember, I don't know, you know, it's like young denial or whatnot, 
but I was sure that we would be replacing other regular army units and that we wouldn't actually set boots down in the desert, but I was taught a life lesson that year. You know, part of the backstory, which you already told me when we were talking about Standing Rock, is that you didn't grow up in, shall we say, a warmongering family. You didn't grow up being predisposed to go in the military. Could you talk a little bit about that? Because that forms who you are after the war, too. Yeah, I mean, I don't know many people that are actually warmongers. (laughs) I think that there's people that think that going to war creates a sense of safety for themselves and hopefully creates peace in the future. So I feel like we all want the same thing. But more to your point, I wasn't raised in a, in a family that accepted violence as a way of settling our national disputes. But I, I also wasn't raised in a family that really discussed it openly. We had a lot more immediate issues to deal with. You know, there was always worries about food and shelter and clothing in my family. So, you know, the talking about international politics wasn't really a major component of my education. In ways, I'm really sad that we didn't have those discussions more, but we did have those discussions based on, like, community and local peace. But somehow that didn't translate into my <laughs> into my overall view of when I was 18, you know, of world peace. I, I was still justifying the idea of a good war. And even in, through my service in Iraq and into my service in Iraq, even though while I was there I didn't see that as a, a good war, there was still this debate inside my heart about can there be a justifiable war. And that took a lot of soul-searching to understand what my views were. I don't think that many kids, young men and women, when they're joining 18 to 20-year-olds, have had that time or that space to really have those thoughts. And so I think it's it's like our you know we're taking advantage of, the, of them of those children by forcing them to make those decisions or not make those decisions and go to war. So you ended up going to war, and you, did you do just one tour, two tours? How long were you there? Well, you know when you join the the National Guard, they say that you're signing up for uh, one weekend a month and two weeks in the summer. That summer in Iraq. That was a long two weeks. That was the longest two weeks of my life, I got to tell you. But 2004, we came back. I came, actually got back to Wisconsin February 14th on Valentine's Day at about one in the morning. Flew into the airport, and the only one that was there was Sarah. I had been evacuated out out of Iraq for a hernia, and I had to get surgery, emergency surgery. And so I was—I didn't come back with my unit, and you know it's just this, this sweet Valentine's Day, probably the sweetest one I've ever had. Getting off the the plane, I had my boots just strapped to my bag, and uh, there she was, just big smile in the airport, and just sat there and held her. It'd been about 18 months since we'd seen each other, and it was really momentous. It was really momentous. So did you become clear that you were a rock veteran against the war before then or that that was the direction you were headed? Was that clear while you were in Iraq? My service in Iraq was, I didn't agree with what was going on. 
I remember that while I was there, I didn't allow myself to really question that as a matter of surviving. You know, you have to, both mentally and physically, you have to live through it. There wasn't any getting out of it at that point. You know, you're there. And you can try to make the best of the situation. But, you know, it tries your moral aptitude every day, and you feel like you're going down this rabbit hole. And that's what it felt like. It, it felt like I wasn't only hurting these people in Iraq, these Iraqi people, but we were also we were also getting destroyed. We were losing. And so, like, it wasn't something that I could actually talk about with anyone. I mean, it wasn't something that I could even really discuss inside my own head while I was there. Being against war didn't really come up. I mean, even when I came home, I was just so happy to be home and not there. And I wanted to get back into my life so quickly that I tried to ignore all the the anger that I had and, and how I was, you know, my own personality, how it wasn't aligning with other people back at home and how I was having a lot of personality issues with people, you know, a lot of conflict. There's a lot of conflict in my life when I came home. I didn't know how to say please and thank you anymore. Most of my actual words that I used were cuss words. The majority of a sentence would be filled with cuss words. You know, the normal give and take of societal norms was just, it was lost on me. You know, I gave orders and I accepted orders and I fulfilled those orders. And when those, when that transaction didn't happen in the way that it should happen, like in the military, you know, I was quick to be very angry. And so, like, that's really hard for people to understand back in the civilian world, why there's no please and thank yous and why, you know, when there's something that's you know, a safety problem, a safety issue, like a veteran is really quick to be very loud and stop the situation. It's not the way that our society runs here. So there's a lot of learning. And I was so angry that I, I didn't want to learn. I didn't see that these people were right. I thought I was right, you know. It, it really wasn't until I started talking. I ran into another veteran. He was working with my wife at a grocery store. And, you know, we just started talking. And he was the first person I really had talked to about the war since coming back. You know, it had been four or five years. We hadn't been educated on PTSD or separation anxiety from the military. And so I didn't, I didn't understand all those things. And I wasn't in a regular army unit. So when I got discharged, I was just released. There was no check-in. There was no anything on how you're doing or anything like that. It was, you know, just kind of, you're free. And like I said, I, you know, I was, I was angry, really angry. And I think that, like, one of the best things I've ever done was to talk with other veterans. And one of the best things that I, I'm involved with to this day is groups of veterans. You do feel a sense of brotherhood and kinship, sisterhood with them. And that's, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's both good and bad, you know. Like, any family relationships, there's problems. And, but with veterans, I, I don't know. Like, I have a lot more patience with them because I, I, I know personally what they're going through. And, you know, sometimes you still see veterans that I, I know I have friends that are just not on the other side. They haven't figured out how to regain their composure after the war. And every one of us is different. And I'm not saying that I have. I'm just, you know, I know that 
people can be going to these really dark spaces and, you know, it affects you lifelong going to war and the adverse realities that you see that just contradict everything that you were raised to know can really, it's imprints permanently on you. You pointed me to an article by Bill Distler about CRAS, C-R-A-S, instead of P-T-S-D, and also V-S, CRAS. Do you want to talk about it? You are clearly connected with the idea, with the concept of citizen reality avoidance syndrome. Well, you know, coming from war and coming back into the society, you know, this culture that we were raised in, and being told that I have a disorder because I survived a year of combat is, it's counterintuitive to me to think about that and to accept that, that this is a disorder, you know. A lot of what people describe as PTSD are survival techniques, and they're, it's a natural reaction to an adverse, unnatural situation. You know, light sleeping, being always aware of, of vehicle traffic, who's watching, avoiding big crowds because of safety. Things like this are often basic survival techniques for combat. My friend Bill Disler is a Vietnam veteran, and he's, as in myself, you know, I look at a Vietnam veteran and I, I ask them, how have they survived? How have they survived for 40-plus years of these dreams and these feelings of isolation from you know, the people around us that we love the most. One thing that he pointed out was that PTSD is wrong. We shouldn't look at the veterans and say that they have a disorder. He, uh, I don't know if it was half-joking, but it's something that I think that there's a point that he's making here that's really important when he came up with this other acronym, CRASS. Civilian Reality Avoidance Syndrome. You know, when I go to therapy and I talk to the therapist about watching my back and, and how, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm afraid that someone's going to kill me. And he goes, well, it's been, you know, how long has it been since someone has tried to kill you? And he tries to make a point that it's an irrational behavior at this point in rural Wisconsin to have these fears and these thoughts. And the point that Bill is making and that I, quite frankly, I, I agree with is that it's irrational not to have them. It's irrational not to think that we're in a situation where it's just like you, got, you can't be blind around you. It's, it's called situational awareness in the military. And I'm not saying being afraid of everyone, and, but knowing where you're at at all times is always an advantage. And knowing how to get out of the situation that you're in is always an advantage. I think that it's easy for the people in our culture and our society and in America and these first world nations across the world to forget about what's going on and, and not really have an understanding of what it's like to f actually fear death in your face like it's eminent or it could be. You know, like, there's this joke that I like to point out or I don't know, some veterans and I we always joke about is that you know, one in Baghdad's complaining about secondhand smoke. You know, it's just not even a thing for them to worry about. You know, so he's smoking right next to me. I might get lung cancer in 20 years. You know, that's that's not on their list of things to worry about. I think it's a good thing to note. It's nothing to take personal, and it's not 
um, veterans against the civilians or anything. It's just, you know, as a society, we need to understand each other. And that, you know, like, we as a society sent these people to go to war. And we as a society need to accept them back. And we need to accept them in whatever form they come back because it's on our behalf that they went. And so, you know, it means more than a yellow ribbon. It means way more than just having a bumper sticker or an American flag in your yard, you know. Soldiers don't only risk life and limb. They also risk their peace of mind. And that's, you know, something that it's really hard to quantify and, and it's hard to show your support for it. And it takes more than just a casual hello, you know, and it takes more than a, a Facebook thumbs up. It's something that you have to be real. You have to be real with them, with us. Bill describes CRAS, the Citizen Reality Avoidance Syndrome, and some of the words that he used, by the way, is that it's a spiritual disorder and that this disorder tells us that God doesn't mind if we kill some children as long as it's for a good cause. That's some of the words that are in his article that you shared with me. Spiritual disorder. Is the spiritual disorder, again, a disorder of the soldiers or is it of our society? Well, the soldiers are part of our society. There's nothing particularly wrong with the soldiers. I'm always amazed at how, as a society, we'll get upset when our soldiers do something that we find uncouth. You know, if it's urinating on bodies or taking trophies or... Of course, these are things that are horrible to do, right? Like, I'm not saying that at all, but these are brutal men and women that have been trained to be brutal men and women. And the whole goal of the military is to reach an inner brutality in these people. And so then when we look at the video footage or whatever, hear reports of these atrocities happen, we always blame the foot soldier that actually did it. But it's not just them that did it. It's also their commanders. And it's also the will of our country to train these people to be this level of brutalness. So, like, I think there's such a disconnect between our expectations and how we treat these people that go to war in our name. Could you talk a little bit about the spiritual element of it, though? What was spiritually sustaining or not while you were there and since you've gotten back? You said talking to veterans is a big help. It's got you on a path. I think that talking to veterans hasn't been as much of a spiritual as a, uh, an understanding. It's been more of a psychological understanding of my emotions. The moral compromises that you make in, in war are spiritually damning. And I think that like, like when I was in Iraq, everyone became more spiritual. You know, like being in a National Guard unit, and we had 15 soldiers from my high school, you know, in my unit, like, I knew these people. I knew them for a long time. I've known some of these people since kindergarten, some of these soldiers that I fought with since, since we we're all peeing our pants in the playground together, you know, in the sandbox. Like, I've known them for a long time. And you go to this extreme situation and, you know, it's constantly an onslaught on your moral, your spiritual connection to who you morally think you are. And it's, it's really damaging to your, yourself and your being. 
the spiritual journey, I was raised in kind of a Lutheran, open Lutheran family. My mother was Lutheran. My dad was a Buddhist. And so there wasn't a, a singular belief. And it left me a lot of space to explore. I was in junior high, and I started going to meditation classes on Tuesday with the Buddhists. And then on Wednesday, I'd go to the Catholic after-school programs. And I was hit a really curious point in my life. And what I found at that point was that nothing had really come to me, and everything was based on a lot of guilt. And I didn't enjoy the guilt, and I wanted to celebrate God as a more of a beautiful thing, and more of a celebration than guilt. And one of the most disturbing things that happened in Iraq, and I didn't even know that it was going on when I was there, but our sight scopes on our, our rifles they changed right before we went to Iraq. And we had these iron sight scopes that were in the classic M16A2 iron sights. Right before we went to Iraq, we got these electronic ones that were a red dot laser scope. And they were manufactured in Ohio. And, I, you know, it was, it was interesting because it was right before we, we deployed, and I never really liked them. And so I kept my iron sights while I was deployed I didn't want to have to change batteries, and I didn't shoot as well with the, the red dot scopes. I didn't feel as comfortable with them. But after we got back, I remember there was a report that the manufacturer got in trouble for putting biblical references into the Social Security's numbers of each of these, these red dot scopes. And so they were actually referencing, you know, retaking the, the Holy Land and Israel retaking the Holy Land and in, these, in, in the numbers on each of the scopes. So every time you're looking through the scope at an Iraqi, you're looking through this biblical crusade passage or what was taken as a crusade passage. And it's, it's so spiritually damaging and hurtful to go to the place where, you know, this is the region that Jesus came from. Jesus looked more like an Iraqi, a Middle Easterner than he did me, you know. And then being a tool or being a cog in this wheel of crusades, and, and even if it was just some manufacturer that was going on a limb on his own, and it, it wasn't a part of the overarching goal, to know that that was a part of it is also really, it's, it's really hurtful. And it really gives a lot of credit and a lot of, to what the Iraqis and, you know, the people that want the Americans out of that region are saying. And, you know, it really damages our credibility. So you continue to evolve spiritually. You have some change that happened while you're in Iraq and you get back home. I sense that you are a more spiritually healed person than the person you're talking about right now, the you that came back from Iraq. Could you talk about that? Well, you know, like when you're in Iraq, you're seeing these people doing all these daily chores that you do every day when you're at home. And so it's really hard to, like, disconnect that from who you are. And coming back to the United States, I was doing some work with uh, war resistors in 2008 and 2009 out in Washington State. And uh, it, was, <laughs> it was really amazing because, you know, I'm going up into Vancouver and I'm meeting some Iraq and Afghan war resistors up there that have been brought up into Canada and have been housed and fed for years and years. And it was all these Quakers up in Canada that were doing this work. 
And at this point, I hadn't gone to a Quaker meeting. But I, I started getting more interested in the Quakers. And one of the biggest problems I had when I was a child and with the religion was all these people telling me how I should have this relationship with God and what my relationship should be like. And it always felt unnatural to me and wrong. And so I got more interested in going to the Quaker meeting, but I, I'll be honest with you, I was really afraid of sitting still for an hour. <laughs> it's kind of intimidating. <laughs> Pretty common feeling. <laughs> and then in silence was even scarier. But the Bellingham Quaker meeting was, very, it was a very sweet, small meeting. And I had my, probably my first, it's, it's the strongest, like, spiritual, emotional events of my life happened in those first few meetings where I, I knew I was at the right place. And sitting there in silence was, there's 15 of us. We were the youngest people in the room being in our early 30s, it felt like these waves of beautiful energy, strong, heartfelt energy passing over my body when I felt like the meeting was really in, in the moment and, and really speaking and was in the light. I could feel these waves overcoming my body and they felt really like refreshing. They were very powerful, but they were also really very refreshing. And almost to the point where, I mean, my body was physically start, starts rocking at that point when that happens. And it was, you know, the, the ministry that I was hearing from the people in the meeting was always for really, like, simple and beautiful and spoke to me. And I learned that sometimes, you know, they're not even speaking to me now. Maybe they're speaking to me later. And so I, I felt welcomed and I felt at peace. And feeling at peace speaking about God, this was the first time that I felt peace with having God in my life. And it was a celebration, and it wasn't, it wasn't the guilt. And it, it was about being here now and living this life and enjoying this to be the heaven on earth. And it was with the Quakers that they supported my activities for peace, and they saw that that was just as important as you know, my, my spiritual development. And so it, it, that's how we got involved with the, I got involved with the Quakers. And so that was one of the steps on the way to your healing. I want to talk about your art, but first I want to remind folks that we're speaking with Ash Curier today for Spirit in Action, which is a Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, where do you find us? NorthernSpiritRadio.org, where you'll find over 11 and a half years of our programs for free listening and download. You'll find links to our guests. So when you want to find the artwork, for instance, that Ash Curier has done, you'll find AshCurier.wordpress.com right there on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. There's also information on all our guests of these last more than a decade, and you'll find a place to post comments, and that helps us have two-way communication. It really helps us when you post a comment when you visit our site. There's also a place to donate, and that is how this full-time work is supported. It's by your donations. It's not by funds from the government or from corporations. It's because you believe in this programming. But before you support Northern Spirit Radio, I ask that you first support your local community radio station. They come first. They're invaluable in terms of having a local voice, in terms of getting out the ideas of the community. It's absolutely crucial. So please, 
please start by supporting your local community radio station. Again, Ash Curie is here. He's an Iraq veteran. He's also an artist. And I want to get into that part of your work, Ash, because I think it also probably represents part of your healing. That's how I interpret it from what I've seen and from what I've heard you talk about previously. Could you talk a little bit about your connection to art and what you were doing up in Bellingham and how you, you know, Ohio, you're off to you. I mean, you've moved around quite a bit since you've been back from Iraq. Yeah, I've I've been traveling quite a a fair amount since coming back. Well, it was with the War Resisters in 2007 and 8. I was out in Bellingham doing work with them in Canada and the United States. I had made a couple speeches up in Canada, and I think they ended up on YouTube or something like that because I got an invitation to Japan to walk on behalf of their pacifist constitution. So the walk was, it was around a thousand miles. It took us two and a half months. We walked from Hiroshima to Tokyo. And I really, like before going to Japan, I was I was against the Iraq war, but I didn't understand war as being the sickness, you know, and the Iraq war was just a a symptom. I didn't realize that war itself fell under its own category and was always unjustifiable. But it wasn't until I going to Japan and, and really like having these conversations about peace and war every single day for two and a half months. And then also learning from their culture about how they feel about peace and war and their history. It was amazing to see like how their history textbooks talked about the same events in totally different manners than our history textbooks. Or just, you know, their thought process is different because, you know, they have a different culture than ours. And so they approach things like peace and nonviolence and in a different way than we would in the Western culture. You know, peace is a very loose term that we use as like we all have the same idea of peace. And especially here in the West, we always talk about, oh, well, peace. Well, we got to pray for peace. And one of the things that I, I would encounter in Japan was people would ask me, they'd be like, well, what kind of peace are you talking about? And I thought that was really interesting that before we could talk about anything like peace, we needed to discuss and confirm what we were talking about. So you participated in a two-and-a-half-month walk, 1,000 miles or something like that? Yeah, yeah. And you got pictures of this. And at this point, I want folks to know that there is, out on YouTube, there's a video that you can run, I'll post it by the time you hear this, there's a video that you can watch of images that Ash has created, the images of peace workers who he met during his Japanese tour, but we'll also be looking at other artworks that he's done related to war. Yeah, I started taking the portraits of the Japanese peacemakers on the Peace Walk, and I've returned several times to give lectures on the American-Japan politics and the realities of war, and I've continued this portrait project since then. So if you follow the link on the nordenspiritradio.org site, I'll link you right to the video so you could be seeing, as we talk to Ash, some of the people that he's encountered. So could you talk a little bit about this? And and you, you say their peace constitution. I think a lot of Americans don't even have an idea what that means. Since World War II, Japan has a pacifist constitution that says that land, sea, or air militaries will not be maintained. 
Well, I mean, they still have a, a security defense force. And it's been, I mean, their their pacifist constitution is Article 9 of their constitution. And it's a really beautiful piece of work. I encourage everyone to go online and read it because it's it believes and it's words supporting the belief in humanity. But this was in place after World War II. And interestingly enough, the United States, of course, had a major component of making them have a pacifist constitution. In today's political atmosphere, the United States is the major reason why they're currently trying to remove that from their constitution. And it was under Vice Secretary Richard Armitage. He was under Condoleezza Rice. Richard Armitage went to Japan and in a lecture told Japan that they weren't living up to their SOFA agreement, which is it's your securities packed between the United States and Japan. And because they didn't have a military and they couldn't go to Iraq and support the U.S. military. And so since then, both the major political parties in Japan have been eroding the sanctity of Article 9. They actually just passed a law, I think it was last, last year, it might have been the year before, allowing the government to change the Constitution, and that was the first step into removing Article 9, because first they had to have a way to change it. Before that, it was illegal to change the Constitution under any pretense. But there is this long history since World War II of a pacifist Japan, where they don't have military, where they're not putting 50% of their federal income tax dollar into the military, and where they're not training all of their young men to be soldiers. And you referred to running into peacemakers. Could you talk about them? And maybe we'll look at some of the photos while we do that. Of course. What's interesting is the parallels between the American World War II veterans and the Japanese counterparts is that that generation never discussed what war was like with their children. And it was the Japanese didn't discuss it with their children and the Americans didn't discuss it with their children. So there's these essential bits of information that are missing. And so you find that People in Japan are related to veterans of World War II and like their grandfather is or their father is or whatnot, but they've never understood what their father did or what their grandfather did and what their experiences were during the war. And so I've been, re I've been going to Japan to talk about war and to tell about my experiences. And, you know, so many times I'm discussing, you know, what, what it was like to go and and people will tell me about their grandfather, their grandmother, and their service, and how they didn't know what their grandparents' service was, but how like it had a, such a major effect on their lives. And I, I, don't, I don't care what military you're in. The experience is pretty universal of a veteran. The constant dehumanization of the enemy, for example, we call the Iraqis hajis, you know, we're and in World War II, we called the Japanese Japs. And the Japanese called us Kichigabe, which is kind of, you know, a white devil <laughs> mix of, of bad things. More recent generations in Japan don't even know the word Kichigabe. Like, you could say that in a room of 18-year-olds, and no one would even know what that word meant or had even heard it. 
And so you learned this. I, when you went to Japan, did you speak Japanese? Did you actually know any of these words? Or All I spoke when I first went to Japan in 2008 was Domo Arigato, Mr. Rabato. <laughs> I went over there with that key piece of advice, how to say thank you in a Domo Arigato. I could say thank you in a polite manner. And I've been back, I think, nine or ten times. I've spoken to well over 50,000 people in person. I've been always lucky enough to have translators, interpreters. I've never actually had a, an official translator. You know, you have to have some kind of certification for that. But I've, I've had good interpreters. My Japanese is, is okay. I can hear it all right, mainly about one or two subjects. Things that I particularly like, which is food and drink and peace and war. <laughs> Those things I can talk of, I can order anything off the menu that I would like. And I can discuss a little things, but nothing in depth. Japanese is very, there's many layers to it. I think my, after my first year going there, I figured out how to count up to 10 and then I immediately was trying to impress my Japanese friends with my counting ability and they told me that that was only one of their systems of numbers <laughs> good luck and so you know when I order a drink it's a different system than if you order like a meal or if you're you know discussing how much you weigh those are all different number systems, so they're not even related like how we have one, two, three, four, and they have first and first, second, third, fourth. They're 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 totally different. So I've I, I'm very res respectful. I I, <laughs> I don't think that I'll understand everything that's going on, and oftentimes my motto is to be the child and trust my friends and trust their decisions. <laughs> In Japan, it's, uh, you know, of course. So you've had people helping, interpreting for you, and you must have learned a lot about peace from the Japanese as well. Yeah. I mean, like I said earlier, I went over there with a very narrow understanding of what wars were wrong. And I've spent a lot, a lot of time learning and listening in Japan. You know, I, I think that, like, it's a wonderful thing to be able to listen to people from a different culture that have a different way of understanding things and getting together with them and, and having these discussions really advance my understanding of where I stood. You know, it's one thing to, to learn from people that have in the same town or just the same culture as you, but you can also have these dualities of reality, you know, like... Like in Japan, they talk about the emperor saving Japan from a third atomic bomb. You know, by signing the peace deal with the United States, the emperor stopped a third atomic bomb. And so he was considered a hero. You know, he wasn't the one that started the war and caused the two bombs to drop in the first place. No, no, no. That's the American side of the story. You know, the Japanese is that they were the victims of the atomic bomb. And the emperor saved them from a third one. And also in America, we teach that, like, you know, we use the atomic bombs to save American lives. But the war was already completely over at that point when we dropped those bombs. And Japan had no ability to cause any death on the Americans. They're an island nation. 
they had already asked for for peace from the the generals had already asked for peace, and we dropped those atomic bombs, and, really, and that was really arguably just a a snub at the Russians and for the Cold War that was just starting off. Um, it had nothing to do with saving American lives or or the Japanese lives. No, that's just how we legitimize it. Is some of this history, is this from the peacemakers that you've met along the way that you learned it? Yeah. So there's one one image of a guy that it's titled Kichigabeye. It's an old World War II veteran, and his hands are on his hips, and he's looking at the camera. It was really interesting as uh, he's a World War II veteran that hadn't seen an American since he fought the Americans in Okinawa. He hadn't seen an American until he saw me. And... So the last American he saw was an American soldier, and he sees an American soldier again. And his, I think it was his daughter and son had organized an event for me in their town. And after the event, through the event, I didn't know this man was a, a veteran. And after the, the event, we're sitting down and having a little dinner together. And he starts talking to me, and, uh, you know, I'm waiting for the translation. And what he says is that I'm the nicest Kichigabe he's ever met. <laughs> the nicest white devil? So he said that I'm the <laughs> nicest white devil. <laughs> and we all got a good laugh out of it. I've been working for peace for about 10 years now. Not even 10 years. And I've got so much to learn from these people that have been thinking about peace for a lot longer. In Japan, I've been really fortunate. I'd say I've been really fortunate in all my life, actually. But in Japan specifically, I've been fortunate to meet some people that have really been thinking about peace for a long time. There's another, a younger monk, who's standing in front of a balcony, Terada Shoni. And there's a lot of different venues or avenues of peace that people are thinking about. And one of his, Terada's, uh, Shoni's uh, peacemaking is to bring in couples, families that are having problems having babies, and they have this temple where it's supposed to help procreation happen. And so he sees it as like this service to the community. So Tedada is, it's interesting, he's got his prayer beads around his neck. And what I've noticed is everywhere I go in every culture, people have these same prayer beads. And so just like the, you know, the Muslims that I saw in Iraq, they're counting the prayer beads as he walked. When I was walking with Terada, he always had those prayer beads in his hand, and he'd be saying a prayer as he's walking. And I think that, like, the spiritual prayer is, for peace is really important, and it's a very wholesome aspect of peacemaking. The young man standing uh, with a dragon tattoo lives on a hippie commune in, on Shiroshima Island, and they do all-organic vegetable farming, and they do... They also do comedy there. The main organizer used to be a comedian on public television, and he's pretty funny. And so they have this great community where it's based on laughter, and they do so much laughter there, it's, and everything is really funny, but they grow food. So you'll see the image of um, there's a woman in a canoe out in the in tropical area, and that's in Okinawa. That's in northern Okinawa, where they're planning on moving the Fatenma Air Base. And that place that we're out in the water is a, a coral reef where the Jugon lives, and that's the Japanese manatee. And it's an endangered animal, the World Heritage Site. These reefs are a World Heritage Site. You're not allowed to destroy them. 
but the U.S. wants to fill in this reef so they can build an air base there, so they can land their planes on the reef. So for the last 14 years, the U.S. has been trying to build up this air base at, in Henoko, and the people there have been protesting it ever since. So one of the things that the first the U.S. did was get a construction company to, to put in some scaffolding on the middle of the coral reef so that they can lay down concrete pads and start filling it in. And the protesters started occupying the scaffolding structures. And they occupied them for all day for, I think it was about 10 years, every day for 10 years, until the scaffolding started to rust. And then because of the, you know, basically OSHA standards or safety standards, the government had to come in and remove those, those structures. And so in Hanukkah, we actually saw the will of the people outlast steel, which was really interesting and really a really powerful place. The town up there has gathered together, and they watch where the U.S. is trying to build these bases, and they set up like a little camp and just to, just to be a witness, you know. They just want to see what's going on. And at the behest of the U.S. military and the U.S. government, Japan has... The first thing they did was try to convince people not to protest. So if you don't protest, you get a tax break in Hanoko, which is really interesting. <laughs> so there's three families that are main protesters, and they don't get the tax break. And so that was for a couple years. Then the government changed its tactics and started suing the protesters for being like on the road or on public land. And in the last lawsuit, which I think was maybe 2013, 2014, they named an entire family, including a five-year-old girl in a lawsuit of trespassing on U.S. military grounds. So the, the Japanese government is suing a five-year-old for standing outside of these gates, these military gates, and just watching, just watching, not occupying, not getting in the road, not getting in anyone's way, but just observing. <laughs> One of the great stories that happened there was that Japan hired a spy to watch these families that was watching the gates, and but he was an Okinawan. <laughs> so he got paid for two years to hang out with the with the protesters, <laughs> and he didn't he didn't want the the base to go in either, but he also wanted a job. So what he did with his time is he made forts for the kids that would come and play and of the families that were protesting. And it, it took the government a couple years to realize that he was, uh, I don't know what you say, a double agent, not, not really helping them at all. <laughs> so the next image is of five women in Okinawa during Okinawa days, which is, it's a big festival, but it's a really sad memorial. Okinawa days is about the anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Okinawa where the Japanese were telling the Okinawans that it was better for them to die than to be captured by the Americans. And so the Okinawans, uh, at the behest of Japan, committed mass suicide. They had these family grenades that they would call them, where the family would crowd around a grenade to save on grenades. And then there was also where this event is, is these big cliffs, where I don't know how many thousand of Okinawans jumped to their death at the behest of the Japanese to avoid U.S. capture. And so these women are getting ready to perform and to memorialize the thousands and 
thousands dead before the American invasion. Well, this image is of someone on the Peace Walk, and I, you know, he was a really nice guy, and we were talking a little bit, and he ended up getting some of the biggest blisters on his feet that I'd ever seen anyone in my life. And, you know, being a combat lifesaver in Iraq, I took care of a lot of people's feet, and I saw a lot of nasty stuff. So on the during the 1,000-mile Peace Walk, I was volunteering to help with people's feet, and when he took off his shoes, he kept saying, like, oh, and maybe I'll go home for like a couple days and get better. But he had blisters from the toes to the heel. And, and I just kept telling him, no, no, you need to go home, maybe go to the hospital. <laughs> You're not going to be coming back anytime soon. But what was interesting about the Peace Walk, and this is the first action that I had done for peace that was really heartfelt, was that people really wanted to come back and they would quit their jobs and they would come back on the Peace Walk. Or they'd go home and then, you know, as they were leaving, they were saying goodbye to everyone and, you know, maybe we'll write in five years and still be friends or whatever. But then, like, two days later, they'd say, I went home, I went to my job, and it just was so meaningless, and I wanted to be here, so I quit. And they'd come back for the last month of the Peace Walk or the last two weeks of the Peace Walk. And so he was one of those people that you could see that the Peace Walk had really invigorated him. And walking through all these towns, smiling and enjoying ourselves, gave a great image of peace to the people that were in their offices. I just remember so many people coming and not just, I was like a bug or they just get addicted. or And I was the same way, you know, I like, I couldn't understand why some days like one day we had to take a train because we didn't have a a stay place we had to take a train back to a previous stay place and i was like i came here to walk you know (laughs) the logistics had uh you know not really caught up to me at that point i hadn't figured that out yet but (laughs) (laughs) so i think that concludes our visit to japan as part of this but there's a lot more artwork that you've done ash since we've run out of time on air here here's what i'm going to do folks I'm going to continue talking to Ash, and we'll put up with images on YouTube. Look for the second link that you'll find out on NordenSpiritRadio.org, and you can travel with us a little bit further through Ash's healing artwork and his piecework as he continues it in his life. I mean, I think you're still continuing to work full-time as a worker in essence, even in your small town in southwest Wisconsin. I am. I'm also going to Japan this April for another speaking lecture tour there, and I'll be in the National Ceramics Conference showing uh, some of my ceramic artwork uh, in March. To find Ash again, ashcurier.wordpress.com, the links on nordenspiritradio.org. It's fascinating, all the things I've learned about Japan that I didn't know, and I've pretty much been a lifelong peace worker myself. You've taught me so much. Of course, I haven't been to Japan yet. Maybe I can teach you some things about Africa because I've been much more in that area of the world. But, Ash, thank you so much for continuing your artwork, for carrying the witness of a veteran and of knowing of what you speak and therefore being able to convey it so much more to us. Thank you so much for doing that work, and thank you for joining us for Spirit in Action. Thank you very much, Mark. Assalamu alaikum. May peace be with you. 
And again, folks, come to northernspiritradio.org for links to the two slideshow videos, including one of Ash's photos of Japanese peaceworkers and the other of Ash's artwork. Thanks to Andrew Jansen for production assistance with today's program, and we'll leave you with just a portion of Holly Neer's song, The Great Peace March, in honor of Ash's march in Japan. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. Here's a bit of The Great Peace March. Ancient eyes are watching in the night The stars come out to guide the way The sun still shines despite the clouds And the dawn is dusk his dawn is dusk, his day Farmers rise and dream to feed the world The world awakes to feed the heart Hearts beat while a thousand flags are waving And the farmer sees a dream as played upon theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice, with every song.